Simondo reading group. We are continuing our reading of Imagination and Invention. Um, what I wrote last time is that we got to page 116 of the translation, so that's where we will pick up. So we're on part three of the book still, um, and we are in section, I think we're in section B. Uh, is that right? Yes, section B, subsection three. Um, so yeah, we, we've been going through um, various different kinds of images at the psychological level uh, for a while now. Um, and these are all images that occur after the encounter with the object. Um, so a couple weeks ago, we looked at these um, uh, forms of images that, that he calls consecutive images, which appear after, um, that are, are sort of an immediate uh, response to a stimulus. And so the visual version of this is when you look at a bright light and then uh, uh, either the light turns off or you close your eyes and then you have um, an after image. Um, and, and if you pay close attention to the after image, you will notice that it changes color um, over time. You'll you have like a, a sequence of different colors. Um, and uh, so you can sort of study the properties of these consecutive images and how they change over time, um, which some people have done. I don't know how much research into that has been done like since the early 20th century, which is when... Um, the studies that Simon Don cites happened. Um, and then we also looked at these uh, eidetic images. So these are memory images in, in the more um, sort of strict sense of the term. Uh, and um, so this is what we sometimes refer to in, in sort of colloquial speech as a, a photographic memory. So um, there are people that can look at uh, a picture and um, and then sort of reproduce it in their mind, or they can describe you know the different elements of the picture, um, you know where the different pieces are located, what they look like, and so on. Uh, and one instance of this that he talks about a little bit is the example of a chess player who is able to uh, play play chess um, blindfolded. Uh, so the chess player looks at the chessboard at the beginning of the match uh, and gets like a, a good sort of mental image of what the pieces look like and then um, is blindfolded and then plays the rest of the match while blindfolded and sort of uses that image of the chessboard uh, and manipulates that image in their mind. So like, you know, moving pieces and, and seeing what would happen if I move this piece here. Um, and uh, so most of us, of course, would not be able to like play through a whole chess match. Um, like in our heads, uh, just sort of manipulating the pieces, we'd probably lose track of where the pieces are. But these expert chess players are are able to perform this kind of uh, exercise. Uh, and Simon Don doesn't mention this, but it's it's also relevant here that um, chess players' ability to do this, like to recognize chess um, situations on the chessboard uh, and sort of remember where the pieces are and so on, is actually only um, only applies when the the arrangement of the pieces is a real um, chess situation, so a, a situation that can arise um, through the rules of chess. Uh, if you just take a bunch of pieces and sort of place them randomly on a board, not in a, an actual chess situation, um, the chess experts don't actually perform any better than um, uh, novices who don't know anything about chess. Um, so it's it's not just that the chess expert like has this sort of ability to remember shapes and where they're located um, in a sort of abstract sense. It's that they, um, through their expertise in chess, they have learned how to grasp um, a chessboard arrangement um, 
in a sort of one glance and to remember that arrangement. Uh, and so it's it's actual chess situations and like um, what relationship the different pieces have to each other that that these experts are grasping as opposed to just uh, a sort of geometrical arrangement of shapes. Uh, and then we also looked, um, I think this is the next bit that we looked at, is um, this idea that there would be um, sort of different types of uh, people in terms of what types of images they're most susceptible to or they're most capable of eliciting. Um, and and so this is, um, I think it was uh, Galton who first introduced this idea um, that, uh, well, actually, sorry, he, he just mentions Fechner may have in, uh, mentioned this as well, and then Galton. Um, but yeah, so the idea is that um, certain people have... Um, their memory and their capacity to recall and reproduce images is primarily visual. Um, so if you ask them, like, um, how do you spell a certain word, they will sort of have a, a mental image of the, the word printed on the page or, or written by hand on a page or something like that. They, they have a visual image of what the word looks like, um, whereas other people, um, if you ask them how to spell a word, they might, like, sort of move their hand as if they were writing it. So, so those people have a, a kinesthetic image of, uh, of the um, spelling of the word as opposed to a visual image. Uh, so yeah, there would be this uh, visual type, uh, an oral type. So there would be some people who, whose images, whose memory would be primarily uh, in terms of sound. Um, so they would maybe not be able to spell the word as easily, but they can remember the sound of the word. Uh, and then um, a kinesthetic type or motor type um, and then a mixed type. So this would be a, um, a combination of the, the other types. Um, and I think uh, this sort of typology has probably not been examined or has not been studied that closely since some of these early studies. Um, I know there's been a similar or, or work on a similar idea in terms of learning styles. So there's like, you know, you've probably seen or maybe you've done some of these like online tests where you um, sort of uh, do these like problems and then the test tells you like you have a pre predominantly um, visual learning style or predominantly um, auditory visual uh, learning style or, or something like that. Um, and But this uh, learning style uh, concept, I think, has been largely debunked in psychology of education that um, it's there's no evidence that um, that there's any real difference uh, in terms of like which uh, sort of approach to learning is best for for people, um, um, or, or there's no evidence that people fall into these sort of neat categories of visual or auditory or whatever. Um, um, but uh, so that's not exactly the same type of typology as the one that Simon Don is talking about here, but um, it's obviously related. Uh, so I think there's uh, room to question the extent to which this typology or this categorization of people in terms of memory images is a, is a, a sort of accurate one. Um, but I don't think there's been a lot of work on this topic, you know, since Simon Don was writing. Um, so it'd be interesting to uh, try to, you know, uh, update some of these results and see whether they, you know, still hold up or not. Um, and I think we... Ended, yeah, I think we, we stopped with the kinesthetic category, and so then we're going to go on to the mixed type in, in the rest uh, when we start today, uh, if that's right. Yeah, I think so. 
Um, okay, so I'll stop there. Um, would someone like to read from page 116 uh, where the paragraph break is? I can read. Shoko adds a mixed type to these three pure types. Depending on their origin and acquisition, the images within the same subject are at various times motor, auditory, or visual. According to Woodworth, the mixed type is, a, in fact, the most common. Pure types are rare. It is even possible that certain people present a tendency towards an olfactory or gustatory type. So law studied by Toulouse in 1897 would be of the olfactory type. Representation of people, streets, and houses evoked odors in him. In Baudelaire's work, olfactory notions are frequent and insistent without, without, however, presenting an endless variety comparable to sound or visual images. Indeed, the most common phenomenon is the remarkable power of evoking images and other registers that display olfactory and gustatory stimulations. The smell of tar on roads or the taste of the sap of a pine needle in the mouth. Goulier considers that for a gourmet such as uh, Priya Savarin, author of The Physiology of Taste, there must have existed powerful gustatory images. Finally, the register of tactile images seems not to have been deemed worthy by former researchers uh, to constitute a type of imagination on its own. The reason is that our civilizations are scarcely manual. Words of the tactile register are few aside from the category of fabrics and furnishings, silky, velvety, yet tactile images exist. Those that allow us to evoke a substance, sand, dust, wood, soil, dirt, and its consistency, uh, and they constitute one of the aspects of the attachment to concrete details of the world and to certain modalities of work. The dominance of a given type of imagery in a subject may be studied through, quote, objective imagery tests, and quote. They were progressively perfected since Benet by Angel, Fernald, Muller, Davis, and Bowers. Paul Frasse's Manuel, Manuel Pratique de Psychologie Experimentale presents the most complete and recent method, that of the systematic comparison by pairs of, of images of different registers. The subject must assess which image is the most clear and vivid. After their assessment, the ranking corresponds to all the subject's answers. Uh, corresponding to all the subject's answers is compared to the way in which he thinks he belongs to this or that imaginative type, and rather notable divergences may surface, as Betts found in 1909 by studying Galton's questionnaire. Uh, uh, the next paragraph is like a page and a half, but there wasn't yeah, really anything new. Here. Okay. Yeah, this is a, our recurring issue with Timondon with these giant paragraphs. Um, yeah, so um, yeah, so this is the mixed type, and then some of the sort of miscellaneous types. Um, in these, like you know, if we sort of suppose that um, each of the senses would have like its own type, um, then we end up with you know an olfactory and and so on, all these other types um, corresponding to each of these senses, uh, but. Um, at least in terms of the um, in terms of these um, uh, typologies that that um, that have been proposed, it seems like these are sort of um, rarer types. If uh, you know, to the extent that these types can be uh, are, are sort of real, um, it seems like there are not that many people that um, fall under these types. Uh, and then it's also interesting the this idea that tactile images um, were not sort of taken up. Uh, as like um, as a category, um, um, and you know maybe we can connect this with the motor images. Like um, obviously, our sense of touch is closely connected with our motor um, capacities. 
Uh, like you won't, you only feel the texture of a surface by brushing against it, by you know rubbing it with your fingers or something. Um, so uh, yeah, there's like a, an interaction between the motor capacity and the sense of touch. Uh, so maybe that's another reason that I mean, Simon, Simon doesn't mention this, but maybe that's another reason why the uh, tactile images are not sort of um, made into a category of their own. Um, but um, yeah, it's interesting that there's this. Um, sort of lack of, uh, at least in European languages, maybe other languages that I'm not familiar with have more uh, like vocabulary specific to tactile sensations. Um, but as Simonon points out here, we, we mostly um, use the properties of a surface to describe the sensation that that surface gives. So we describe a surface as silky or, or um, um, you know, uh, grainy or, or, or something like that. Like we are... are our words to describe the sensation that a surface gives are um, derived from the words for the surface itself, as opposed to like um, in the case of visual sensations, we have like color words that are distinct from the names of surfaces uh, or the names of the objects that have those surfaces. Uh, so you know, there's an interesting, um, I guess, difference between uh, visual images and uh, and tactile images in that respect. Yeah, I was I was watching a. Japanese TV show today, and there was some word that I can't remember now, but uh, it meant it was like a word to describe kind of like gelatin consistency in a food. And I was trying to think of the English equivalent, and I don't really uh, think that there is one, but I don't know if there are more or, or fewer uh, sort of tactile words or words uh, denoting consistency in Japanese versus English. Yeah, it's always hard to compare like vocabulary, like uh, you know, number of words in language X for this domain compared to the number of words in language Y in that domain. Um, you know, partly because like finding translations, like you know, uh, uh, like which words belong to domain X in language A and which words belong to domain X in language Y, it might be um, a partly arbitrary decision. Um, to sort of assign the words to a particular semantic category. Uh, and then also you have, um, like, there's the, the sort of famous um, line about how there's 300 words for snow in, in Inuit languages, um, uh, which is actually sort of a myth, but it's also, like, there, it's sort of arbitrary counting how many words, because in Inuktitut and some other Inuit languages, the, you can form words of arbitrary complexity. You can, like... Um, it, it's what sometimes are, are called uh, polysynthetic languages. Like you can keep adding suffixes and prefixes to form words of greater and greater complexity. So you can say like snow in the air, snow on the ground, snow um, on on the water or whatever. You can you can like form all these sort of complicated expressions um, that have the form of one word, but it doesn't really mean that like the language has more words for snow. Um, it's just that you can, you know, uh, uh, apply suffixes and prefixes and so on to form more complex expressions um, that have the form of a word. Uh, and then if you um, if you just look at like the roots, I think there's like one or two words or roots for snow, um, similar to English. Like we have different words for different. We have like snow versus sleet versus hail versus whatever. Like um, you can you can find other words in English as well. So um, yeah, the some of these um, uh, comparisons are um, 
hard to make and sometimes have been made in arbitrary ways in the past. And so there's like some uh, myths about like, you know, what languages have more words for X. Um, uh, but yeah, it would be interesting to, like, I don't know how exactly you would do it, but it would be interesting to try to compare languages to see if there are other languages that have more, um, maybe a more expressive vocabulary for tactile sensations as opposed to English and other related languages that, that seem to have a relatively limited set of words for tactile sensations. Okay, uh, so I think we can go on to the next bit. Uh, let's see. Um, yeah, we've got a few more pages. So yeah, um, if we can read another page or so from 117, if I can get a volunteer. Are mental images? Uh, yes. Are mental images generic or particular? This is a question by which this is a question which, by virtue of the role played in the theory of knowledge by the answer one gives, has long, long, long deserved the attention and study of philosophy. To consider mental images as particular means to place the origin of their acquisition in a historically well-determined circumstance within the subject's life, as in the case of an imprint. To consider them as generic means affirming that within memory, there is a work of condensation, summation, simplification, and organization that occurs between a plurality of perceptual circumstances of acquisition and the reappearance of a unique memory image, which gives the image a generic signification, rendering compatible a plurality of concrete experiences. The image, in this case, results from a process of primary and concrete induction. The process does not stop at a first degree, and it is then possible to try to explain all of mental activity on the basis of this activity of which the generic image is a first result. Taine, in the second volume of On Intelligence, studied the possibility of this general interpretation of mental activity. The problem is knowing whether we can pass gradually from perception to abstract ideas without a hiatus marking a difference of nature between the content of perceptions and that of ideas. Or, to the contrary, whether abstract thought is radically different from, quote, concrete thought, with abstract meaning here not resulting from a process of abstraction, but highly formalized as in scientific theories. That is the question opposing empiricism, which affirms continuity, to idealism, which, even when it admits the perceptual origin of the content of images, refuses continuity between perceptual contents and highly formalized theoretical thought, for which a non-perceptual origin and source must then be sought, such as innateness or a vision of God. Descartes vigorously affirmed the discontinuity between perception and the principles of theoretical knowledge, or innate ideas, and methodical doubt leads to dismissing equally adventitious and factitious ideas. Berkeley, in The Principles of Human Knowledge, also rejected continuity and declared himself not in possession of the, quote, admirable faculty of abstracting ideas. Ber Berkeley admits for himself only the faculty to imagine, to represent the idea of particular things he has perceived, to compose them and divide them in various ways, the two-headed man, the centaur, but always endowed with a particular form and color. One can very well imagine a hand or nose detached from the body, but they are always a particular hand or nose with a particular color and shape. Quote, Likewise, the idea of man that I frame to myself must be either of a white or a black or a tawny, a straight or a crooked, a tall or a low or a middle-sized man. I cannot, by eff any effort of thought, conceive the abstract idea above described. Uh, should I stop here? Or? Uh, let's go to the end of the paragraph. Oh, it's about to end. Okay. All right. One cannot, according to Berkeley, imagine qualities that can only exist incarnated in an object separately from that object. 
The object cannot be imagined without its qualities. This affirmation contradicts the conception of induction in Aristotle. In the passage from particular senses to the common sense, a work of generalization and abstraction is already taking place, and this work continues in the shift from the passive intellect to the active intellect. Yeah, so this is a, a sort of a classic question in uh, in philosophy and in, in theory of knowledge, I guess, in, in particular, um, about the relationship between general, uh, between particular and general ideas. Um, and um, so if we think of um, images as uh, a sort of um, almost physical result of the um, operation of the object on us, so like, um, you know, when you look at, uh, I don't know, a dog, um, the light rays are reflecting off the dog and impacting your retina, and something happens in your brain that you know, results in you seeing the dog, um, having an image of the dog. Um, there's this sort of quasi-physical, and I say quasi-physical because no one knows exactly what, you know, the process going on in your brain consists in. Um, but uh, um, this sort of forming of an image is always only particular. It's always this dog, um, these light rays reflecting off the dog in, on, onto my eye. And these are always particulars. Uh, but we also have um, a concept of dogs in general. We can recognize that this is a dog. We can, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, infer properties of, you know, we can infer that given that this is a dog, um, it's it's also a mammal. Um, we can uh, make predictions about what this object will will do uh, based on the fact that it's a dog. You know, it's likely that it's going to bark, for example, um, as opposed to I don't know meowing or making some other noise. Um, so, um, yeah, we have these, uh, particular images, uh, and we have general concepts. And the question is, how do we get from one to the other? Uh, and there's sort of two lines of, um, uh, response to this kind of problem is, um, either there's like a sort of gradual passage from a particular image to a general, uh, concept, which is, uh, a sort of empiricist, uh, answer to this problem. So, uh, there would be, uh, so often this is phrased in terms of abstraction. So we start with this concrete image of the dog in front of me, and then maybe I um, abstract away from the color, the specific color of this dog uh, and uh, the size, for example. And then I can recognize other dogs that have a different color, a different size, um, uh, as as sort of, you know, being grouped under the same category. Um, and... Uh, then you know this would be sort of gradually i would gradually sort of remove content from my images and as i remove that content more and more objects fall under that um idea or representation whatever you want to call it um until you get to something like a grad uh, a general uh concept like like the concept of dog um and then the other line is one that holds uh concepts to be something um sort of uh, distinct in nature from the particular images. Uh, so it's not it's not the case that we uh, sort of gradually remove content from an image and then result with get um, get a, a general concept as a result. Uh, instead, we have um, the a general concept is something qualitatively distinct. It's, it's completely different in nature than a particular image. Uh, and and then the the problem becomes how do we sort of um, account for the fact that there's an interaction between the two, the fact that we can, uh, you know, recognize that 
this object in front of me is a dog, for example. Um, and uh, this is like um, sort of the, the key problem or uh, a non-empiricist theory of knowledge is, um, or a rationalist in general theory of knowledge is like, how, how is it that concepts come to be applied to, um, to uh, our experience? And uh, Barclay, um, so it's interesting that Barclay is generally uh, classified as an empiricist. Like he, he's obviously very closely following Locke in a lot of respects, but he falls under the side of um, rejecting the continuity between uh, particular images and abstract uh, general concepts. Uh, and he thinks that um, we only ever have particular ideas. He, he makes this um, claim very strongly. Uh, as you know, in the passages that Simone cited. So if you think of a man, if you have an image, an idea of a man, that idea is always a particular image. You can you can't um, have a, a an abstract concept of man as such, but only ever of uh, a man with this particular um, complexion and height and uh, you know facial features and whatever. All all of these um, are are uh, determinate. You can't have a an idea of man in general. Uh, and it's only ever by means of language um, that we form um, not ideas, but some sort of, uh, uh, I forget the word that Barclay uses, but um, some sort of conception of man in general. So we just, um, uh, it's not that we first form a general concept of man and then use a word to express that concept. It's instead um, the fact that we use a certain word for a variety of different objects that we come to um, uh, group those objects together as belonging to the category man. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so this is um, a completely, so he here Barclay is more or less um, rejecting the whole, uh, uh, the whole sort of problem of how our concepts come to be applied to our um, perceptions. Uh, He's essentially saying that they never do, like we never do apply concepts to perceptions. We always only have particular images, uh, and then there's there are words that we apply to those images. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons to think that this is not a particularly satisfying account. Um, but uh, yeah, so Simon Dong is here. He's just sort of uh, presenting this problem in terms of uh, the history of philosophy. These two divergent approaches that either see images and concepts as being uh, continuous with one another or uh, as being uh, completely distinct from each other. Okay, um, so if there's no other questions or comments on that bit, uh, we can go on. Um, yeah, this is a long subsection. Uh, we've got a few more pages left. Um, I'll read the next page or so. And shows how the passage from particular perceptions to generic images is affected through a process of fusion. Uh, when a subject has seen 20 or 30 Aurocaria trees, none of the individual images entirely survives in his mind. Quote, the 20 or 30 resurrections are blunted by one another, depleted and agglutinated by resemblance. They have thus merged together, and my current representation is but their residue. Unquote. Huxley believes generic images are formed like generic portraits uh, obtained from composite photographs in the process deployed by Galton around 1880. Studying several members of the same family, Galton brought out their common features constituting the recognizable family resemblance through a purely physical process of attenuating individual details and conserving traits displayed by a large number of subjects in the group considered. After having centered and framed the apparatus so that the eyes and the nose ridge of all subjects coincide on the sensitive plate, each subject is photographed on the single plate for a fraction of the total time, corresponding to the sum of all the successive snapshots. 
if there are 10 subjects and if the shot, given the lighting conditions, should take, should take one second, each subject is photographed for a tenth of a second, so that the total exposure time of the sensitive plate is one second in all. After developing, fixing, and printing in positive, we can see that only the features present in 7, 8, or 10 of the 10 subjects appear, the other details remaining fuzzy, or more precisely, having been photographed in conditions of overexposure, each appears only faintly, when randomly superimposed on other individual features, in such a way that the most strongly registered details are those that benefit from a physical process of adding quantities of light that are successively brought to bear on the same regions of the plate by the 10 shots. At the same time, sorry, at the time, process was applied not only to the various members of the same family, but to ethnic groups, Jews, English, professional groups, etc. The process was not systematically exploited, but could be perfected. It represents, through an analogical system, a mode of automatic calculus, albeit a bit rigid since it requires Euclidean coincidences, while living beings have a rather topological structure. Before rejecting as a whole the empiricist thesis, we must understand its reach and see that Aristotle's affirmation that, quote, the soul never thinks without images, unquote, is not merely the recognition of an infirmity of implying the necessity to extract and to learn. It also contains the idea that knowledge progresses out of experience by totalizing itself. The image is already a process of partially formalized knowledge, allowing generalization to occur through analogical systematization. When Aristotle audaciously states that a plant is comparable to an animal upside down, mouth in the ground the way a tree plants its roots, he makes perhaps a partial error about the tropic role of roots, but he energetically exploits the possibilities of systematization and discovery of the image by attempting to form through a mental superimposition, after a 180-degree reversal, the generic image of animals and that of vegetables. In fact, empiricism contains and affirms, through the vehicle that is the image, the possibility of the infinite progress of thought. Um, I'll stop here because next we go on to the, uh, um, other, the other form of uh, relationship between images and concepts. Um, yeah, so this is interesting, um, this idea of the composite image. Um, yeah, so Angus has posted a link in the chat here, I think, about this process, but, um, and Simon Noam describes it, I think, pretty well, but, so the idea is you take um, a group of people that you want to form this composite image of, and you take a photograph of uh, all of the people successively on the same photographic plate, um, and you you have to sort of regulate the exposure properly, as Simon Don describes. Uh, and then what happens is the image forms a sort of average of all the different features of the uh, subjects that you are taking a picture of. Uh, and so this was done for families to to form like sort of the the average member of a family, the image of this average member of a family. Um, and Galton was also a eugenicist, one of the early uh, um, advocates of eugenicism. And so he wanted to, for example, um, identify what are the traits of a criminal. Um, so he used, you know, uh, pictures of uh, criminals to um, to form these composites, uh, you know, to find what, what sort of features mark someone as having a criminal tendency. Um, and he pointed out, actually, that uh, these images, these composite images are um, surprisingly um, beautiful. Like the people are the sort of, average person that you find is actually more attractive than like the the people that you sort of uh combine into forming these averages um yeah so here are some uh examples that angus has posted in the chat of these composite images um um and uh yeah so these composite images tend to be um attractive because they sort of average out all the irregularities that individual people have um, the, like, you know, one person has, like, slightly asymmetric jaw, for example, and uh, 
um, another person has a, you know, uh, their jaw is slightly asymmetric in a different way, and those two are averaged out, and, and the result is a symmetric jaw. Uh, and, um, you know, roughly speaking, our um, appreciation of someone's uh, physical beauty has to do with um, their the symmetry of their features. Um, that's obviously an oversimplification, but that's one uh, element that goes into it. Um, so yeah, these composite images, because they average out all the irregularities, they end up looking, um, um, you know, more physically uh, attractive than um, the people whose images are going into this composite. Um, so yeah, and, and as Simon mentioned, this was applied to you know different uh, you know families, ethnic groups, professional groups. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, the this composite of the criminal. Um, so yeah, the idea was that you could like identify once you like found the the average criminal or the average uh, English person or whatever, you would be able to associate these physical features with um, whatever, um, you know, intellectual and moral, whatever, all these traits that are supposed to belong to these groups. Uh, so you would be able to identify someone as, you know, having a criminal tendency based on their facial features, um, which, you know, there's obviously a lot of uh, problems with that approach. Um, but the reason why Simon Don brings this up is because this sort of composite photo process is um, uh, analogous to the empiricist explanation of how we form general concepts. Um, so if you uh, if you hold the empiricist position, then you take it that um, our our concept of tree is formed by means of observing a bunch of trees and um, sort of. Uh, averaging out all the different features. Uh, so this tree is, you know, slightly taller. This one is slightly shorter. This one has um, leaves of a certain shape and, and this other one has leaves of a different shape. But we average out all of those differences to form like the average image of a tree. Um, and, and so this is uh, how we form this general concept of a tree is this sort of average image of a tree. Uh, and um, yeah, so this is the sort of quasi-physical model of how um, how uh, an empiricist explains the formation of general concepts, uh, and there is um, there are some problems with this. Namely, like one sort of important problem is um, how do you know first of all which things to group together, like in the first place. Like if you don't know what a tree is, how do you know that this object in front of you should be added to your average image of trees? Um, um, like uh, you have to already have a label for these objects, you have to know, okay, this is a tree before you can um, sort of combine that image with the other things that you've seen that you call trees uh, and, um, and like, you know, uh, add it to your ongoing averaging process of um, forming that um, average image of a tree. Uh, and so this is something in uh, contemporary machine learning, there's a difference between um, label or sorry, supervised and unsupervised learning. Um, in terms of like uh, different processes for classifying images, for example. So you can either like if you want, if you're training your um, machine learning system to recognize trees, you give it a bunch of images of trees and you have uh, a label that says this is a tree uh, and then a bunch of other pictures where there's no trees and there's no label or you have a label that says this is not a tree. Uh, and then the machine learning system, you know, if you do everything well, will eventually learn to recognize pictures that have a tree in them. Um, then the other, so that's supervised learning because the idea is that you, you supply the labels to the, the images and then the, the uh, machine learning system 
eventually comes to recognize the uh, objects in the image. Uh, and then unsupervised learning is where you just give the, the uh, machine learning system a bunch of images, and then you, um, you, the machine learning algorithm just uh, groups the images in terms of categories. Uh, like There are different ways of doing this, but like clustering in terms of some uh, um, features of the images. And, and there's no, when you do unsupervised learning, there's no guarantee that those categories are going to resemble our categories. Like, um, so the, the machine learning algorithm might classify the images not in terms of whether or not there's a tree in them, but it might classify them in terms of like um, how much light, like what is the saturation of light in the image uh, and, and sort of divide them up into the categories in that way. Um, uh, and it might completely ignore the fact, you know, whether there's a tree in the picture or not. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and so the reason I bring this up is because um, this unsupervised learning is like our sort of initial formation of categories as, as human beings um, has to involve something like an unsupervised learning. Like you, you can't, you don't know what a tree is before you form the concept of a tree. Um, but at the same time, we, you know, reliably are able to form concepts like tree, dog, etc., cetera, um, that, you know, more or less agree with each other. Um, and so uh, there's like a problem of how that reliable process of forming those concepts happens across different people. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's sort of the 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 big issue for an empiricist theory of learning is like how is it that we come to agree on um, the, the categories to use, even though our you know experience of trees and dogs, etc. We we all have um, individual experiences that are very different from each other, uh, but we we end up forming these uh, uh, shared categories. The other thing I wanted to mention uh, before we go move on to the next bit is um, this bit from Aristotle about how a plant is an animal upside down. Um, and uh, I think it's, it's a, I mean, obviously this is a, a very sort of um, crude analogy, um, like plants and animals have very different structures. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of truth to it. And um, there's, um, there's actually... Um, some relatively recent research about plant cognition that you know treats plants not just as sort of um, physiological machines that just operate in an automatic way, um, but instead as organisms that are capable of um, uh, receiving information from their environment, um, making decisions um, in terms of you know how to optimize their um, response to um, the the opportunities and dangers in their environment. Uh, and in particular, um, the root structure of the plant is in some ways analogous to the brain uh, of an animal. Uh, and this is actually something that Darwin pointed out as well, um, that plants' uh, roots have, um, there's a whole sort of network of communication between the roots of a plant. And um, the roots will, for example, explore um, the soil in, in such a way as to find uh, water or um, minerals that uh, the plant needs. Um, so they, they explore the soil in a sort of efficient pattern. Like if you, if you, um, were designing an algorithm for like how to explore a volume of soil, it's, uh, the results is, um, you know, close to what you actually observe in terms of, uh, the growth pattern of roots. Um, um, so, uh, uh, 
yeah, so this idea that um, a plant is is an animal upside down is not just sort of a fanciful um, like picture that Aristotle comes up with. It's it's you know there's um, uh, a real um, uh, scientific basis for this idea. Though of course you can't sort of um, extrapolate too far from this image, but um, there's a real uh, sense in which um, a plant is like um, um, sort of uh, essentially. Um, the root of the plant is uh, an essential uh, element of the plant's uh, response to its environment in, in the same way as an, anim as an animal's head is like the, the sort of locus of its um, uh, sensory equipment and its decision-making um, capacity. There's the point in the last paragraph that the, this, what he calls the generic image of plant and animal is formed by this su superimposition of you know basically flipped images in the same way that the uh, Galton composes these uh, or, or creates these composite portraits um yeah i think that's about right yeah so each so the idea is that we can um yeah we we form um an image of the plant as such or the the generic plant or the average plant and then we form the um image of the generic animal um and then we you know by sort of rotating one and superimposing it on the other we we can um have this sort of moment of analogical thinking we we you know grasp something about plants by virtue of um picturing them as upside down animals uh and um yeah so uh this is um made possible so this analogical thinking this you know grasp of some uh feature of plants or property of plants using this um superimposition of images is only made possible by uh the fact that we can form this generic image of the animal and then flip it upside down um so like if you if you think of concepts as something completely distinct from images and uh like the way that descartes does he he thinks images uh that concepts are, um, or ideas, as he calls them, are like intellectual and non-sensible. They're not; they don't resemble images in any way. Um, um, if you think that a concept is something completely distinct from an image, then you can't like flip an, a concept upside down. It doesn't make sense to you know rotate a, a concept by 180 degrees. Um, so uh, yeah, this this sort of operation of analogy is not um, made possible by abstract concepts that have nothing to do with images. So it's only because we um, operate with these generic images that we can, uh, you know, do these operations of, you know, manipulating those images and then extracting some sort of um, analogical truth from those operations on those images. I can read the next paragraph. Sure. Um, next yeah, so let's, yeah, let's go to... Um, uh, yeah, the bottom of 121, there's the, the next paragraph is a long one. So that, like the end of the paragraph on 121. Okay. We would still need to know whether induction takes place according to the process of totalizing by summation to which composite portraits are a physical analog akin to the physiological process of innervated paths invoked by Descartes to explain the formation of habits in a wholly mechanical way, or whether the dynamics of images are closer to the growth of living beings. In truth, in spite of Hobo's theory, which adopts Ten and Huxley's conception of generic images, we may note that the number of presentations of the object only influences image formation indirectly. 
we may have seen thousands of trees without having any clear image of these trees, even if they belong to a single species whose various individuals are very similar. Conversely, falling once into stinging nettles is enough to retain a precise image of them, and through this first imprinting, to instantly form a whole class of nettle-looking plants with or without poisonous hairs, such as the red or white dead nettle, etc. Inductive classes proceed practically from a germ, an absolute origin and experience. The whole class is given in the first experience, and the path of concrete knowledge resembles a more, more an arborescent structure with more and more complex ramifications than a structure of summation, that is, in the end, a structure of concentration of the multiple into a unity. This explains the common dichotomy of quote-unquote good and quote-unquote bad, or true and false. Subclasses had to be added. The tree had to ramify. When we know uh, bolette, mushrooms, the devil's bolette belongs to the quote-unquote false. Dichotomies proceed from secondary imprintings that are not superimposed on the data of primary imprinting, which is the origin of the class. Yet they attach to this line of knowledge through a kind of graft. If it weren't for successive instances of imprinting branching out from a primordial experience, it would be difficult to explain the wide generality of dichotomy in concrete thought. A dichotomy devolves simply from having to add the input of a new of a new knowledge onto an already constituted class. What makes a dichotomy is novelty in relation to the old. Reality is usually much more complex and simultaneous, and the theoretical overhaul of knowledge rarely retains the dichotomic, dichotomic paths of discovery. It is the image which, from the primitive imprinting through successive stages, divides and subdivides a class into subclasses like a tree which, restarting its original process of germination from its trunk each year, subdivides itself progressively from its main limbs up to the thinnest branches. Inductive knowledge through images was highly effective in ancient natural history, perhaps because of the connaturality of processes of growth or evolution of living beings with the modes of development of images. We may note, rightfully, that the inductive knowledge which serves as a basis in Aristotle for its adequation with objective reality is that which bears on the living world considered as an object of taxonomic investigation. Indeed, the various, uh, the different variations in a plant or animal species that stem from a primitive stock take place according to a process of adaptive reactions to new conditions, altitude, climate, interaction with other species which displays a substantial formal analogy with the memory image, which is itself enhanced and differentiated on the basis of a primitive imprinting through successive experiences that bring new features. In other words, the branching structure is shared by the naturalist taxonomy, working on the present result of an evolutionary process of living beings, and by the activity of the image which, through the subject's life, receives from the primordial stock the initial imprinting branches that manifest later imprintings, arranged via successive inputs partially diverging from the primal trunk. Such a tree or branching structure is much less clear when processes of formation in nature involve multiple interactions in the mode of simultaneity, rather than an evolution through successive stages from the stock. The classification of minerals, with all the metamorphic phenomena, is less permeable to taxonomic induction than species of animals or plants within which Prior to scientific research, common knowledge has already recognized families, varieties, groups, and lineages. So he is still, uh, he's still 
summarizing um, inductive concept formation, but this also points forward to his theory of the symbolic image, where there's a kind of primacy of this initial imprinting. And, uh, you know, and, and it, I guess it's not surprising from what else, the other stuff we've read from Simon Don, that uh, there's an emphasis on this kind of tensed relation b- between subject and world, so that it's the, like, you can see there are p- probably lots of different kinds of trees that I've seen many different times in real life and in, you know, watching movies or TV, but I wouldn't be able, I don't have like a, a coherent concept of all of these different types of tree that I've seen. But, um, you know, one bad experience with a nettle is enough to imprint that image on you pretty strongly. And you will remember, um, you know, what a nettle looks like the next time you see it so that you don't pick it up, basically. Yeah. um, So again, coming back to machine learning, there's this um, um, problem that's known as one shot learning or few shot learning. so the so when you when you have a machine learning um, system, you generally like the the most common ones. You have to feed it thousands or millions of images of cats for it to be able to recognize what a cat looks like. Um, it has to like you have to give it um, you know the cat from different angles, different lighting, you know different colors of cat, um, uh, all these things. Otherwise, um, if you like if you only show it cats like from the front under uh, sunlight, then if you like show it a different picture of a cat from the side in uh, electric light, then it will completely fail. It will just have no idea what this image um, is, um, which, of course, is not at all like uh, human learning. Like, you show a, a child a cat um, under a particular light um, source uh, and from a particular angle, um, you, you say, look, that's a cat. And, you know, they grasp the concept of a cat just by looking at the cat once or maybe noticing that you use, you use the same word for this animal um you know two or three times uh like the, the child is able to grasp with very few uh, um examples and is able to generalize to you know different lighting conditions different angles of vision and etc um in a way that machine learning systems are not capable of doing so um uh, what simon is suggesting here is that part of the uh, or one element of our um, capacity to perform this kind of learning in a way that contemporary machine learning systems are not capable of doing is to is is the fact that we are sort of living through the process of evolution of the um, of the the um, hierarchy of beings in in this uh, ramifying structure. So in the same way that um, um, the you know different mushrooms have. Um, arisen out of a common ancestor over time, over many millions of years. Uh, likewise, our image of the mushroom um, is sort of branching, sort of branches out into different, um, you know, categories of mushroom as we learn to recognize that this is not just a mushroom. This is um, this particular type of mushroom, uh, and you know, it can be very important to be able to recognize which you know type of mushroom it is because. Um, you know, some are poisonous and others are edible. So, um, uh, yeah, so there's um, a sort of uh, vitality to our, our concepts The in the same way as um, the living beings, the mushrooms themselves have branched out from each other over time 
uh, and formed these different categories of living beings. Likewise, the um, the concept or the image of the mushroom undergoes this branching process, this evolution over the life history of the individual person who you know learns to recognize different kinds of mushrooms. Um, and uh, so it, uh, the the sort of downside to this is that um, this kind of learning process through vital branching, I guess we could call it, um, only applies to li- living beings or or beings that have um, something like an evolution uh, through branching. And he he mentions here um, geological processes or or minerals or or um, other um, entities that don't evolve through this branching uh, are much harder to uh, sort of classify in categories. And this maybe aligns with um, Simon Don's criticism of uh, the species and genera um, classification system in uh, in on the mode of existence of technical objects. He he points out, and also in individuation, he you know uh, points out that there are limitations to you know this sort of classificatory approach to entities. Um, and uh, yeah, so we we can't um, we you know if you try to categorize um, technical objects, if you try to class them uh, in terms of family and uh, you know, species and genera and branching patterns, then you end up with um, categories that don't really make a lot of sense. Uh, and likewise with minerals. Um, uh, and um, sorry, I'm just reading this comment here. Yes, yeah, so I think that's that's right. Yeah. So he he of course has his own approach to you know transductive thinking, which is uh, which he does think is capable of grasping um, um, you know the uh, uh, process through which uh, minerals are formed and that is capable of uh, you know, a non-species uh, and, and genera uh, conceptualization of these categories. Um, and one other thing that I think is interesting here is um, that I think confirms what Simon Don or um, could be used as another piece of evidence for Simon Don's thesis here is uh, the um, taxonomy of uh, bacteria and viruses um, is much more complicated than in the case of plants and animals and, and fungi. Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is what's called lateral gene transfer, which is um, bacteria, for example. Um, so you don't you don't only have this sort of branching structure, but you also have bacteria directly exchanging genetic material with each other. Um, so it's um, uh, so it's it's not just this sort of tree structure where um, one organism is the ancestor of uh, another, or one population of organisms is an ancestor of, say, two um, successor populations. Uh, instead, you have like populations can um, transfer genetic material from one to the other. So instead of a tree, it's like a, a network. Um, and uh, um, so this makes the whole project of classifying uh, bacteria or viruses much more difficult um, uh, and and in some respects arbitrary because like it's hard to say, like, is, is this population of bacteria descended from population A or from population B, where it has genetic material from both, um, like, which one is the actual ancestor and which one is, is the cross um, that sort of provided genetic material? It's in some cases sort of arbitrary to decide. Um, so, yeah, this is an instance where, again, the uh, classificatory um, approach to thinking these objects or these organisms uh, sort of breaks down because the uh, branching structure of those organisms evolution is not there anymore. I wonder if he, if his 
position on induction or, or like uh, taxonomic classification is less critical here than it was in individuation. Um, because at least in that last paragraph, he seems to think it's not inappropriate to, uh, um, you know, these objects of knowledge that follow um, uh, evolutionary, um, you know, branching differentiation. And then later on, he'll admit that even in the uh, symbolic image, there are like within the branches of the kind of asymmetrical elements of the symbolic image, there are inductive, um, uh, inductive learning functions at work, I guess. Yeah, he seems to be a little bit more nuanced here than he was like in on the mode of existence of technical objects. He just basically in the introduction says, like he gives some examples of why um, classificatory thinking is inappropriate for technical objects. And then he sort of dismisses it after that. And he presents his own account of how we should um, think of technical objects in a non-classificatory way. Uh, whereas here he, um, he, you know, even though he recognizes certain limitations to it and, you know, it doesn't apply to minerals in the same way or, or not as effectively as in the case of living beings, he seems to, um, uh, he seems to be suggesting that uh, it does, in fact, have an important role to play in our sort of overall cognitive architecture, that um, uh, it, it's limited, but it still is an essential component of how we come to have knowledge of the world. Uh, so, yeah, he, he does seem to be more um, nuanced or at least granting a, a greater role to um, uh, classificatory thinking than he, he does in other texts. Okay, uh, so I'll read the next bit. Uh, um, yeah, okay, I'll read the next bit. In seeking to explain the reasons for epistemological success of knowledge through images, still not fully formalized, one must also ask whether the schema of empiricism adequately accounts for the becoming of images, particularly in the case of the memory image. The now traditional empirical schema appears to presuppose that there is a progressive reduction of multiple cases to a more common and arbitrary concept, understanding of a class. The various concrete cases observed are thus theoretically simultaneous and equally important. They are equivalent with respect to their informational contribution to the understanding of the class towards which they converge. In order to abstract the definition of a dog through the different dogs actually encountered, a short reddish dog is just as important as a, uh, as a tall and white one. All are equally to the same extent and simultaneously dogs. All individuals are logically equivalent as sources of information. There is no privilege or authority with respect to other cases. Induction erases the historicity of informational encounters, which can be successive only within the subject's experience. It is the same with the process of deduction that ex exploits the results of induction, quote-unquote formal deduction. Consequences are on the same level. Deductive divergences that go from the unity of principles to the multiplicity of consequences are symmetrical to inductive convergences. Yet we are dealing here with an ideal systematization that is perhaps true when we speak in terms of conceptual knowledge, but not when we seek to describe the genesis of the image and the mode of knowing it provides. The divergences and convergences of images are marginal and adventitious. They are asymmetrical. To return to the example of the Araucaria chosen by Ten, all the Araucarias we have seen are not on the same plane. There is the first Araucaria, uh, an original image of this symmetrical tree with green thick needles, which remains the truest, the most authentic, the most prominent in memory, which will be the source of norms for all succeeding imprints. If the Araucaria in our first experience were to be short and dark green against black dirt, Another taller and yellower will be seen as a tall yellow araucaria, and yet another as a smooth trunk araucaria or with crooked branches. 
In other words, successive experiences as sources of memory images inscribe themselves as variants of a basic text whose anteriority is considered an absolute term of reference and an inexhaustible source of comparative norms. The origin of classes resides in an imprint acting as an archetypal first model, as principle. It is in this sense that the paternal home is the model of all houses, that one's mother or father are the models of authority or the source of goodness and the purveyors of assistance when help is needed. Later experiences may be defined through relationships of divergence that acquire meaning as secondary branches of the original archetypal source. The bad mother or the mother-in-law both acquire meaning in relation to the given original mother, which becomes the good mother explicitly only when later experiences have revealed the existence of bad mothers. Yet in spite of the semblance, semblances of language, there is no symmetry between the good mother or the bad mother with respect to images. The bad mother and the mother-in-law are less fundamental than, than the good mother, the mother with respect to the original imprint. This way of presenting the path of the image within memory along asymmetrical branches strays significantly from an inductive line gathering together in the comprehension of a class, the content common to different concrete individual cases previously encountered. With respect to the image, the class is already given with the first imprint. It is the stock for subsequent data that modify the extension of the class without entirely reshaping its comprehension, and in which primordial features continue playing a major role. To take an example that is easier to analyze than the good bad mother, we know that swans were considered birds that were necessarily white until the day when black swans were found in Australia. Logically, according to induction, the component of whiteness should have disappeared from the understanding of a swan. In actuality, and rather paradoxically, the extension did indeed occur, yet its comprehension did not shed the component of white plumage. Within understanding, the content of the image of the swan retains whiteness, and the black swan of Australia is seen as marginal, somewhat aberrant, an exception with respect to colour. In the same way, the bad mother goes, quote-unquote, against nature, as a kind of monster or counterfeit version of the mother, which can be known and thought only by reference to the authentic original mother. The most important epistemological characteristic of the memory image is the independence of its extension with respect to understanding. Knowing through the image is thus different from the traditional description of inductive knowing. We should note that Ten, for whom the, the entire mental life springs from images and their relations, in fact relies on the idea of an analogical developmental process within natural phenomena and mental images, in Volume 2 of On Intelligence. It is closer to what was later called isomorphism in Gestalt theory rather than a true induction, which requires the passive reception of data received by perception. Okay, I'll stop here. Um, right, so here he's, he's sort of distancing himself from uh, a purely inductive um, theory of knowledge. Uh, and one of the reasons he gives is that uh, a purely inductive theory of knowledge sort of erases the historicity of the learning process. Um, so it doesn't matter which um, instance of a dog you actually come across, uh, all, the, all the images of, of a dog that you learn, uh, that you meet, um, are um, equally, they, they contribute equally to your image of a generic dog. Uh, so your, your concept dog or your image of a generic dog is constantly evolving as you meet more and more different dogs. And um, it doesn't matter, like the actual features of that dog don't really matter to um, the, its categorization under the, the common uh, category of dogs. Uh, and so there's a few problems with this approach. Um, so one is that um, we, we recognize uh, certain dogs as being like more dog-like or better exemplars of the category dog than others. So like a chihuahua is obviously a kind of um, uh, exceptional dog. Like if you only ever met chihuahuas, you would not have a, um, an adequate grasp of the concept of dog. Um, and then, I don't know, maybe a, a black lab or a golden retriever is like a, a better 
exemplar of the category dog. Um, so um, yeah, there's there's a difference in terms of even even though Chihuahuas are dogs, they're not like sort of uh, paradigmatic instances of dogs. They're not like good exemplars of the category dog. And there's been uh, quite a lot of research on this um, for all sorts of different categories um, uh, um, that we are, our actual categorization um, is not just uh, a sort of um, throwing everything into a bin together and, you know, every image contributes equally to the average image of the category. We instead have um, this sort of paradigm effect where, or exemplar effect, um, where uh, we have like an image of, you know, what a dog in general, or what, what is like the sort of um, uh, exemplar of a dog or exemplar of a bird or, or of a car or whatever, um, we have like an image of what it should look like. And then we have like exceptional cases or, or marginal cases that are maybe fall under that category, but are not good examples of that category. Um, and, and so this has been shown for all sorts of different categories. Um, and this is something that doesn't really fit in the um, purely inductivist or empiricist picture of uh, concept formation. Uh, and so Simondon is arguing here that there's something like an imprinting effect um, so that um, your first experience of a dog or maybe your first few experiences of, of dogs sort of shape what your concept of a dog will, um, will be like. Uh, so you, um, if you, you know, meet certain types of dogs, then you, that will um, shape your image of what the sort of exemplar of, of the dog category is. And then other dogs will always be seen or observed in reference to that exemplar. So they'll be seen as like big dogs in relation to the, the dog that you experienced or as small dogs in relation to that dog. Um, uh, and all their properties are always going to be compared to that um, sort of reference dog, that exemplar dog that you learned by imprinting. Um, yeah, so then uh, the, the other issue with this Sort of purely inductive theory of knowledge um, is uh, um, yeah. Sorry, I'm trying to find the the passage. Oh yeah. So here he talks about um, how this also applies to deductive thinking. Um, so if we think so, a, a sort of traditional conception is that um, induction forms the concepts, and then deduction uses those concepts that have been formed. Um, so you you form the concept of man by you know abstracting from the various um, men that you've met in your life. Uh, and then you, you know, sort of recognize um, that each of those men has the property of being mortal. And then you um, deduce that this other instance of the category man is also going to be mortal. Um, that's sort of a, a very simplistic um, account of the relationship between induction and deduction. Um, but um, in, in the process of deduction, we have sort of two directions we can go, um, or at, at least two directions. We can either start from principles like all men are mortal and then we can deduce the consequences of those principles. Um, uh, and uh, the other sort of passage is the opposite direction. Um, um, yeah, we can we can sort of start from the consequences and then infer back to the principles. And um, again, the this sort of approach to knowledge treats those as two um, sort of symmetrical processes, whereas Simon Dong is arguing that, in fact, they're um, uh, distinct processes. So there are sort of recognition of the principle is something distinct from the passage from an instance to that principle. Uh, it, it's, uh, we have 
maybe something like an imprinting of principles um um it's this sort of uh asymmetrical experience of our grasp of a principle um which is not reducible to the operation um that uh passes from an instance to the principle under which it falls um so yeah that's maybe more abstract a little bit harder to sort of picture than the the problem with uh inductive reasoning that uh i mentioned before but um yeah it's uh the same type of issue occurs in the case of deductive reasoning if we think of it in this sort of simplistic way as being symmetrical this point about the kind of asymmetric imprinting um it seems pretty like in comparison with the aristotelian inductive taxonomic thinking the idea that there's uh primary imprinting which determines the like inductive development of the uh, it has like a normative uh function with respect to the development of the image after the imprinting um i wonder if that would make it difficult to kind of come up with a you know objective classification of these various concepts or kinds of images if you know i feel quite strongly that the you know this is this first tree of you know whatever um kind of tree is uh paradigmatic of the type whereas you might feel something different because we just happen to for some reason have strong experiences of uh you know different kinds of tree yeah i think that's right and and this is what i mentioned earlier this is um related to what i mentioned earlier about one of the issues with an empiricist um uh, theory of knowledge um is precisely how we can um get to something objective uh from our sort of contingent um sequence of experiences so every person has a different um set of experiences of dogs yet we all form roughly the same category of dog there's you know you know, maybe people draw the line a little bit differently, or maybe they have different um, ideas about what the power down instance of a dog is. Um, but um, we all, you know, in like 99 point whatever percent of cases, we're, we're all able to recognize the same um, living beings as being dogs. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there's a, a question, like a, a purely empiricist um, theory of knowledge, it seems like there's no... Um, there's no way to to sort of decide between different people's um, uh, categorizations. Uh, you know, one person has one experience and comes up with category A. Another person has another set of experiences and comes up with category B. And those are just two different um, uh, categorizations. And there's no way of saying that one is better than the other. Uh, so, um, yeah, the, so this is one reason to think that a purely empiricist um, theory of knowledge is not going to be successful in explaining how we do end up with, um, you know, uh, veridical knowledge about what categories things fall under that, you know, we can all agree that this is a dog or it's not a dog. Um, yeah. And, and for some categories, we do end up having disagreements. Like, you know, there's of course the, you know, the famous, uh, you know, become sort of a meme now where like is a hot dog, a sandwich. Um, so different people of course have different, uh, like pictures of what exactly a sandwich consists in and you know for some people the hot dog falls under that category and for others it doesn't um and so people like to sort of debate debate these um 
like borderline cases and uh um um but like the reason that this is sort of funny or accept or you know stands out to us is precisely because most cases do not have this sort of ambiguity to them uh that we um you know if if like all of our categories were like sandwich and had these sort of um uh borderline cases happening all the time if like every sentence we said was subject to someone else saying you know that that's not true because this doesn't you know fall under that category um it would be impossible to communicate or to you know do anything together um so our our sort of capacity to have a social life of any kind uh to cooperate and communicate and so on is dependent on the fact that we can in fact um agree on a large proportion of the applications of our categories uh and that is something that is hard to explain from an empiricist point of view uh, okay so we're just about at time uh i'm going to suggest we stop here for today and pick up from the bottom of 123 next time um um yeah unless anyone has any like final comments or questions okay, i'm taking silence as a no um oh uh one one thing so i was going to say is uh yeah, I guess I'm just interested to see how the um, the symbol image that I think he's working towards now, uh, you know, in volume one, the uh, signification or individuation preserves all the information in, in the terms that I guess it kind of subsumes within it. Um, and I wonder if that is going to be one of the differentiating factors between this symbol image and the... Uh, the inductive image, which proceeds by abstraction and so kind of eliminates the differences rather than preserving them. Yeah, I think that's a good um, question for us to like hold on to as we read. Um, I, I don't actually remember the details of what the symbol image consists in as we get later, as we, that we get to later in this book. So, um, yeah, I think that's something that we can try to um, answer as we get to, I think, part uh, so, uh, section C of this part, I think will will be um, about the symbolic image, and then so we'll you know have a a better picture of you know what the answer to that question is when we get there. Okay, uh, so let's end here. Um, thanks everyone for coming out and for your contributions. And um, so as I mentioned at the beginning, I can't do next week, but um, I'll see everyone hopefully in two weeks.